Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey, pelvic people. Today we have an article by M.P. Warren and Annie Perlroth on the effects of exercise on the female reproductive system. This was published in 2001 in an endocrinology journal. When I was studying, hormones and their cascading systems really stressed me out, no pun intended. It's a lot to remember, so if that's you, grab a tea, a snack, take a deep breath, and trust that you'll be an expert on these hormones in no time. Okay, women have been much more active in the past few decades than before. While exercise is substantially helpful in general health, strenuous exercise is associated with hypothalamic dysfunction. Remember that GnRH we talked about before and how its pulsatility can go down with changes in energy availability. Lower GnRH can change menses or even delay menarche. So, an energy drain incurred by women whose energy expenditure exceeds their dietary intake appears to be the primary factor affecting these GnRH suppression in athletes, especially those sports that are really emphasizing on muscle leanness. The clinical consequences associated with the suppression of GnRH include infertility and compromised bone density, which appears to be irreversible. Failure to attain peak bone mass and bone loss predispose hypoestrogenic athletes to osteopenia and osteoporosis. So let's go over that cascade again, specifically that suppression of the hypothalamic pulsatile release of the GnRH, which normally occurs every 60 to 90 minutes, and then limits the pituitary secretion of the luteinizing hormone and, to a lesser extent, the follicle secretion hormone, or FSH. Without the luteinizing hormone, or FSH, there's a decrease in ovarian stimulation and estradiol production. The actual cause of changes in menses in athletes is due to the prolonged follicular phase or the absence of a critical LH or estradiol surge mid-cycle. Delayed menses or secondary amenorrhea is caused by very low luteinizing hormone levels. The exercise stress hypothesis theorizes that intense athletic training activates the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which disrupts GnRH pulsatility and in turn menstrual function. However, experiments attempting to induce menstrual dysfunction in women have shown that no exercise coupled with caloric restriction still affects LH suppression, whereas exercise alone has no effect on LH pulsatility. So that kind of clues us in on how important caloric restriction is in some of these hormonal changes. Some recent research also showed that the hormone leptin might be a significant indication of reproductive function. So leptin is a protein product of the obesity gene, which is secreted by the adaptokine, which appears to be an independent regulator of metabolic rate. Based off of that understanding, you can imagine that leptin fluctuates in response to fat stores and energy availability. So leptin levels positively correlate with body mass index. The energy drain theory doesn't explain that reproductive dysfunction of women in all athletic disciplines, though. Sports which emphasize strength over leanness, like swimming or rowing, are not associated with low weight and restrictive eating patterns. But athletes engaged in those sports are still vulnerable to menstrual irregularities as well. The thought behind the menses changes aren't the same theory as the sports that focus on leanness and low BMI, which promotes the hypoestrogenic states. 
So the increased androgen profile for these women may correlate with the increased concentrations of a hormone called DHEAS. DHEAS is a hormone from the adrenal gland. Your body converts the DHEAS into androgens like testosterone and androtenodyne and estrogen. During puberty, males have a high level of DHEAS. Higher levels of DHEAS may impair follicular development and result in anovulation or amenorrhea observed in women. This article touches on delayed menarche. They focused a lot on ballet dancers. They noted that the delay in pubertal progression and menarche may be related to energy drain related to overactivity and decreased nutritional support. Low leptin levels associated with nutritional insult may play a critical role in the initiation of puberty. The prolonged hypogonadism associated with delayed menarche may favor long bone growth, resulting in a decreased upper to lower body ratio and an increased arm span, which has been observed in ballet dancers as well. I thought it was interesting that there's even a body type associated with delayed menses and athletic performance. So you can imagine if physical characteristics associated with late maturation may be more suitable for successful athletic performance, this may encourage athletes to work as hard or in the same way as prior athletes who were successful. So this energy drain hypothesis was further supported in another study regarding ballet dancers where there was a reversion of secondary amenorrhea observed during periods of rest. Okay, so this article goes on to talk about skeletal problems. We know by now that hypoestrogenic athletes are predisposed to osteopenia and osteoporosis due to the failure to attain peak bone mass and potential continued bone loss. One statistic I was kind of shocked by was that 48% of skeletal mass is attained during adolescence and the accumulation continues into the 30s. So these athletes generally don't attain peak bone mass and may enter a menopause with significantly lower bone density than normal women. We may be treating dysfunctions related to the female athlete in some of our postmenopausal women. Besides stress fractures, there's also an increase in scoliosis incidence noted in female athletes. In one study, scoliosis was reported in 24% of ballet dancers, which is much higher than that in the general population. Touching back on stress fractures, the prevalence of these fractures among dancers and runners has also been positively correlated with duration of amenorrhea. Original theories surrounded by the hypoestrogenic amenorrhea and bone loss blamed estrogen and its role on bone reabsorption. Recently, there's been accumulating evidence suggesting that metabolic factors associated with nutritional deprivation may be more important in regulating bone activity. The osteopenia observed in amenorrheic athletes involved in sports emphasizing leanness may therefore be another adaptive response to chronic low energy intake. I want to touch back on scoliosis because I thought that that was so interesting as a part of this article. It's been suggested that nutritional deprivation and the resulting delay in sexual maturation results in delayed epophyseal closures of long bones, which may in turn predispose athletes to scoliosis. So weight-bearing exercise has been shown to have a positive impact on bone density in hypoestrogenic postmenopausal women. We see that all the time in literature. This differs from the adolescents experiencing amenorrhea. Exercise may somewhat modulate negative effects, but it's not going to sufficiently protect from bone loss. So with all of these concerns, how do they diagnose an individual with exercise-associated amenorrhea? 
This is still a diagnosis of exclusion. Differentiation between that hypoestrogenism and hyperandrogenism can be made via patient history and hormonal evaluation. Often, a recommendation of one to two kilogram weight increase or a 10% decrease in exercise load is recommended, although that's not always followed. For those in the hypoestrogenic amenorrhea category, diagnosis should be including careful screening for nutritional insult. Treatment of the possible underlying nutritional deprivation can restore both the menstrual cycle and stimulate some of that bone growth again. While oral contraceptives aren't really a part of our role, it's good for us to understand that hormone replacement, while controversial, is sometimes recommended. Recent research indicates that higher dose oral contraceptives may effectively prevent further bone loss, but will not replace that bone loss prior to intervention. For nutritional implications, as bone preservation depends on both calcium intake and bioavailability, promotion of a diet rich in calcium and vitamin D diet is important. The authors note that calcium, like 1,500 milligrams, and vitamin D, so like 400 milligrams, are also recommended daily as supplements. Not to end this on bad news, but loss of bone mineral density is directly related to the duration of amenorrhea, and they found that it appears to be irreplaceable. So this is why it's so crucial to restore menses of amenorrheic athletes as soon as possible as to minimize bone loss and bone complications resulting from osteopenia and osteoporosis. I think what I like most about pelvic health and those who are taking the women certified specialists is that everyone has so many different roles and treatment populations. I've met some ortho and sport PTs turned women health who see athletes all the time, some more geriatric populations in home health settings and ALFs, neuro PTs, CLTs, really the full gamut. I think my favorite part of this article is that it ties female athlete into those older osteoporotic females and the implications for treatment throughout the female lifespan. Our next article is our last one in week two, so if you're not excited, you should be. This is an article by Christo in 2008 on bone metabolism in adolescent athletes with amenorrhea, eumenorrhea, and control subjects. It's a really interesting one. Hope to see you guys all listening there. Bye, everyone. Bye.